Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast. My name is Pat Iyer, and I have with me Wendy Rice. She's a legal nurse consultant and a case manager, and she's had experience with the very important aspect of who pays for the care of patients and what happens when there is a denial for that payment. Wendy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Could you give us, first of all, a little bit about your background, how you got involved in doing that type of analysis? And this, I assume, is part of your legal nurse consulting experience or was prior to? Maybe we can clarify that, how you got in it. And then is this part of your LNC role or is this a separate piece? Okay. Um, my background is um, med surge and cath lab. And I've been a case manager, certified case manager for over 20 years. And I was offered a position to start crafting appeals and was just given that opportunity. So with my background in case management, we have to do the review for criteria of impatience, um, that it just makes sense that that I have that background that makes sense to be able to have that information experience to be writing the appeals. Um, so just having my background in that gave me that ability to have that opportunity. Um, Mm -hmm. So I've been writing appeals or have that crafting experience now for about six years. And um, it just, I've found how it all totally correlates with um, legal nurse consulting and how we are investigators. I was like, I'm thinking that appeals are probably might seem boring, but I like mysteries and it just crafting these appeals enables me to be that investigator and find solutions to these denial mysteries. Well, let's first focus on for especially for the people who are listening who are not in this country, they may not understand how healthcare gets paid in the United States. So we'll begin there so that we've got a common language. Okay. Um well I've pretty much determined or it's the DRG system um, has been adopted by CMS, which is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And that is the basis that is used for paying hospital care. Um, and this was originally just for Medicare patients, patients that are over 65 or under that Medicare um, insurance. Um, but it's now used by most insurances, meaning that insurances have taken on that as their basis for their policies. And so along with the DRG system, CMS has also provided us guidelines that define um, what those indications and limitations are for that payment coverage. And, um, and this is what those insurances have subsequently created plans to base their payment coverage guidelines on what CMS has defined. And sometimes CM, um, the 
insurances have actually a stricter criteria than what CMS has recommended. And can you define DRGs? Um, DRGs are designated related groups. Um, they are um, they're an amount of money that um, has been assigned a code for the diagnosis that a patient receives when they're in the hospital. Um, an example I was thinking of earlier was a patient can have um, heart uh, surgery, open heart surgery, and say they're in there for six days. So the DRG has a certain amount of cost that they would cover for that heart patient, that patient be in the hospital for six days. Well, if the patient's in there only five days, the insurance still pays six days of payment. Or if the patient's in there 10 days, the insurance company will still only pay the six days. So it's a, a designated set amount. All right. And then you just mentioned that they won't pay for day seven through 10. What's the basis for denying that coverage? And do insurance companies have that right? And we we know that they do. You just said that they do. So where does that come from? Where does that come from? Um, well, they, as far as the DRGs, that's almost a different, uh, how would you say it's, that's a set, a set rate. So if it's an insurance company that actually, okay, so I'll say that not all insurance companies actually pay by a DRG rate. Um, they may actually pay like a, what, there's some types of formulas and I'm not a billing expert to know the different formulas that they would agree, but it's according to whatever their contact agreement is with that health provider's agreement is with that um, insurance company. And so they might pay like a percentage of a DRG. There's there's different formulas that they've agreed to. So if it's a if it's a hospital that is more on a day-by-day -day payment, um, that would be what they would call the denial of those last three days, you know, in that ex example. Um, but if a DRG payment we would, as the health provider, we would just have to accept that the doc, the insurance company is just paying that DRG amount. So it's not, that wouldn't actually be considered a denial. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it, it sounds like the hospital has a lot of incentive to get people out before the end of that time frame. What does that do in terms of pressure to try to get people out more quickly than perhaps they should be discharged? Um, well, that would fall under um, probably the, into the readmissions issues that could happen that would actually need to be appealed. Um, if the patient leaves the hospital, then they re-enter or have to be readmitted within 30 days. Um, the CMS has designated that there's core diagnoses that they are watching to see if they are a, um, a diagnosis that the patient gets readmitted for. Can't quite think of that term, but um, they are monitoring those diagnoses to see if that's one of them. And so the CMS has designated like um, heart failure, COPD, um, some respiratory uh, diagnoses to see if they can um, just everything what they need to do and then 
uh, keep from having that patient be readmitted. So it's, it's trying to help give the patient the best care at that time and then not having readmissions, which is going to use money um, and not be resourceful of the Medicare payment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's a lot of concern about waste and about fraud related mm -hmm. to payments. Mm -hmm. There's a man in my church who is a physician who took publicly available DRG data and became suspicious because he found that there were a high number of patients in the hospital with this unusual form of pneumonia. And as a physician, he knew that this was an uncommon pneumonia but they were billing, they being the hospitals, were billing at a higher DRG because they got more money for the unusual pneumonia. Oh, wow. And he said, can't be. So he worked with the government and was able to expose that fraud. And then as a person who related that, he is a relator under our legal system, he was entitled to 25% of the money that the government recovered. Awesome. Wow. And he says he can't live long enough to spend all of the money that he got. He took on another project after that, I found out recently, and again proved the fraud. Wow. And then he was told, look, if you keep going on, you're going to bankrupt a third of the hospitals in the United States. So we've made our point. Thank you very much. We're not interested in working with you any longer. Wow. Just a little side note. That's un it is unfortunate. And I know I'm portraying our country in a bad light by referring to the fraud. This is a very uh, highly regulated system, but things slip through the cracks and people take advantage of little loopholes to gain compensation that is unjust. Right. Um, I'll just add... Um... The DRGs, there's there's a there's a bunch of numbers, right? And so they're all actually all grouped into MDC numbers. Um, and if a patient gets readmitted and the two admissions have the same MDC number, um, those are the types of admissions that the insurance companies can say, well, it falls under our readmission policy, and so. We're we're going to put both those admissions together and only give you the one DRG payment for the for both admissions. So um, the hospitals probably try to choose different diagnoses so that the patients fall under different MDCs and then they aren't grouped together and into one payment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you didn't hear it from us. No. <laughs> Tell us about the process of denial uh, for the medical necessity of care. Who makes okay. that determination? Is that a secretary? Is it a physician? You know, is it a nurse? Who is involved in checking off and saying, nope, we're not going to pay for that care? Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. Hello, I'm Barbara Levin, and I'm here today with Pat Iyer, who is going to talk to us about having a LinkedIn site and what the key components of a LinkedIn site include. LinkedIn is the biggest 
networking group for legal nurse consultants that exists. It is a business networking, which I'm emphasizing, as opposed to a social networking, although it's part of social media. It is the way that attorneys can find legal nurse consultants to help them with their cases. And it's a way for you as a legal nurse consultant to find attorneys who handle medical cases, and you can establish relationships with them through LinkedIn. Some of the keys for successful use of LinkedIn by legal nurse consultants include having a well-designed profile that uses keywords that show the benefits of an LNC working with an attorney, looking at the information that you're posting and doing it on an ongoing basis. And when I say ongoing basis, I mean that you're signing into LinkedIn more than once a month, or some people put up profiles and never return. When I'm looking for guests for my Legal Nurse podcast, which I've been doing for seven years, I'm going to LinkedIn and looking for the people who are actively posting because I know they'll see my invitation. And I've selected them specifically because of their experience or their clinical focus. Many LNCs put on their timelines, hire me, Mr. Attorney. Did you know that you could use a legal nurse consultant to save you time and money? Yes, many of them do know that, but you're not offering them value. You're simply going, if you envision in a room, going up to a person saying, hi, my name is Barbara Levin. I'm a legal nurse consultant. Hire me. Like, How would you react if somebody approached you in a room like that? When you post useful information, you post links to articles, you post links to your blogs, you put in headlines about news of medical issues that might be of interest to attorneys, you're adding value, and then you have the opportunity to engage in conversations and respond to the comments of the people who see your posts. When you strategically use LinkedIn and you visit it a couple times a week, devote 15 or 20 minutes to it, post something at least once or twice a week. You're taking advantage of the power of LinkedIn to be more visible, to build up your credibility and to attract attorneys to you so that you can get cases and successfully use LinkedIn for the benefit of your business and of your clients. Thank you so much for sharing that valuable information. We would like to invite you to attend our seventh virtual Legal Nurse Success Conference, where you will hear so much more about this topic and other topics for our virtual conference. Other topics include those that are uh, clinical presentations, uh, attorneys will be presenting, we have business topics, we have nationally recognized speakers, and Pat can talk to you about one of our keynote speakers. The topic of the good nurse has been hitting the Netflix world and the book itself has been out for a few years. The good nurse is a person named Charles Cullen who is currently serving, I think, seven life sentences. Think about that. He has to be in prison for seven times what his normal lifespan would be for systematically killing patients for 17 years. One of the prosecutors involved in the case contacted me and hired me 
to help him determine which patients Charles killed in a specific hospital. Joining me in that session at the conference is Dr. Kathleen Ashton, who was hired by the plaintiff attorneys representing the families of some of the people Charles killed. Our focus will be on what a legal nurse consultant does when presented with that dilemma. We know who killed, we know people died. Our job was to put it together to make the links between Charles and the victims. We also will have an attorney, Sam Davis, who handled and successfully settled a case involving a man who accidentally electrocuted himself and set his clothing on fire. One of my coaching clients, Nancy Stuck, was the legal nurse consultant who wrote the expert fact witness report to summarize his medical injuries. In this conference, there's a mix of inspiration, knowledge, networking, and support with sessions presented by business experts, attorneys, experienced legal nurse consultants, all designed to help you with actionable information so that you can grow your business, network with people, get more cases, and get inspired again. All from the comfort of your own home. No airfare, no food, no pet care, no parking, no hotel bills, no additional expenses. Once you enroll in the conference, your expenses don't extend to anything else. They are the ability, in this case, to sit in your home and watch the conference from the comfort of your desk chair. Yes, we'll give you breaks. You won't be planted in front of the monitor the entire time. This is our seventh conference that you can join by using the link below. It will be March 23, 24, and 25, 2023. And the link is lnc.tips forward slash March 2023 virtual. We are confident that you will walk away with so much new information as well as meeting and greeting legal nurse colleagues, attorneys, and others. We know that you'll have a wealth of information. So we look forward to seeing you. Join us. Now let's return to the show. Okay. Um, actually, the well, I will say that the medical director of an insurance company is the one that makes the final determination. Um, there are nurses that are the corresponding people that correspond between the nurse, or I mean, the medical director and that healthcare facility and um, review people. They can be LPNs, they're not all nurses. And it seems that, you know, in that correspondence, you see what their credentials are. And so most of them, I would say, probably have some utilization review credentialing. Um, but it is, it is that medical director of the insurance company who makes that final determination. And the physicians that are, they are physicians and they may be certified as a diplomat of the Board of Insurance Medicine. So there is a certification that those physicians can obtain. Um, and they, the nurses will probably obviously review them and see if they meet the criteria. But if it does, you know, it's not 
clean cut, then that medical director has to do a special review on that case. But they are definitely overseeing and the one that is responsible for those decisions. It's not the nurses. Mm -hmm. And what kind of criteria are used to create a denial of care or denial of reimbursement? Um, they are referring to that insurance company's policies. Um, as I said earlier, they um, have base those on um, CMS's criteria. And then they, as I said earlier, they can be even definitely much more restrictive than Medicare's rules, just so they make sure that they are definitely at least following in those rules and they don't get uh, dinged or, you know, in trouble. Um, but the criteria that um, they have set is According to those guidelines from CMS, um, there's what we've they've termed like the buka the buka insurance is Blue Cross uh, United uh, Cigna Aetna and Humana. Those seem to be you know the biggest healthcare insurance companies out there, and most other smaller insurance companies will probably follow along with their. Uh, guidelines, but um, otherwise the small insurance companies, they will follow some national standards of care, such as like from the AMA, um, the ACC, like cardiology or um, orthopedics association, um, they have national standards set out there. And that is the information that these smaller insurance companies will have you address if you look on their website. So um, it isn't always clean cut as far as detailing of how much um, the bigger insurance companies have set up, because you can research specific CPT codes for a surgery in the uh, larger insurance company uh, policies, but those specifics aren't gonna be found in the smaller insurances. Mm -hmm. I've seen letters in medical records where Surgeons have requested approval from the insurance company to perform surgery in an outpatient setting. What's behind that request prior to delivering care for getting permission? Well, um, for outpatient elective surgeries, um, they are reviewed by the physician's office prior to the procedure, and they have to get adequate information from the insurance company to find out what is that the requirement for that specific CPT. They may need authorization, they may not. And so the physician needs to write what's called a letter of medical necessity, and that is forwarded with their office records to the insurance company to see what, um, if it is, is a covered benefit or is a covered procedure. Um, and, and then, you know, they should get information back from the insurance company, whether it's approved or not. And sometimes they're, they're not approved and the surgeon actually, sometimes they will still actually perform the procedures and they have documented, you know, discussing if it was denied and whether the um, payment arrangements have been made with that patient prior. So, they, they can, you know, they get information back from the insurance company to see if it's approved or not. And then it's gone back and discussed with the patient, you know, what they, what they feel, if the doctor feels that's still what is the proper uh, procedure for that patient. 
I know this is a hard question. I'll tell you this in advance. I'm thinking about the financial implications for a family. If the surgery is really necessary, the family wants, the patient wants to have it done, the insurance company won't cover it. What kind of thousands of dollars are we talking about? And I ask you this also within the American context. Sometimes people from other countries have no idea how extraordinarily expensive it is to get medical care in the United States. And they may think, well, a surgery could be, you know, a thousand dollars. I don't think you can walk into an OR and spend a thousand dollars. Tell us what that means financially for families whose care is denied or if patient's care is denied. It it could be anywhere from fifty thousand to a hundred thousand um, dollars, depending on what type of surgery they had. Um, I'm seeing that most back surgeries. So if you have two lumbar vertebrae fused on back surgery, those definitely run at least a hundred thousand um, dollars, depending mm. on how many vertebrae the doctor worked on. Um, And then how many days that you were in the hospital too. So that's just the surgery cost. Um, And the way that they bill insurance inpatient is different than outpatient of how the bill looks, but it's under like a supplies line for if you're in inpatient status. Um, But it would show that your supplies were like $125,000 for this piece of hardware that the doctors put in your back. So um, it's it's pretty costly for some of those spine surgeries, yeah. And I can think, Wendy, of people, because I used to work on a neurosurgical unit as a med uh-huh. surge nurse back in the 1980s. I can think of people who, a small number, but a people who liked to have back surgery. Oh, wow. Met their needs. One woman was um, in the fictitious syndrome. She wanted it for the attention and she convinced her surgeon to do the operation on her um, because she liked the experience of getting attention. And, and there uh-huh. were a few people like that who were repeat back surgery patients where the surgeon had to put his foot down in one case and say, no, I'm not going to operate on you anymore. You just, you know, we've done it enough times. Wow. Uh-huh. And you mentioned earlier the medical mystery piece of this. Now, these were people I got to know because they kept coming back to my unit over and over again. Uh-huh. When you're alluding to the medical mysteries in the medical records, Tell us what you mean by that expression. Well, um, it's it's not always apparent what really went on um, when they just came in with abdominal pain, and then they end up finding out that you know there's definitely a lot more going on in there once you start doing some CT scans or MRIs, and um, you know once they and pulling in the different specialists and seeing what's going on. So um, some patients, they need to be transferred to even to a higher tertiary hospital 
for more specialized you know, GI looking or heart specialists to find out what really is going on with the etiology of the pain or just why this person's all full of fluid antisarcoma that's all over their body and just can't figure out why that's happening. So mm -hmm. that um, I, I just, I like learning and understanding how our bodies work and just the different things that are going on. So it's mm -hmm. just an interest. Mm -hmm. How long does this process take when there is a denial of care? What is an expectation? Is it resolved in weeks? Is it resolved in months? Is it years? Give us a sense of that. Um, well, usually care um, is billed, say, within two weeks of that person having their care. Sometimes it might take up to a month. Um, but I think most providers probably like to get that claim out to that insurance company as soon as they can. And then um, when it's reviewed, they are seeing, you know, what they're going to reimburse. And then we get the, the claim would come back to that bill processing department and see if it was paid according to whatever that contract was set up originally between that provider and that insurance company. So then um, they see discrepancies, then they'll have to find out, you know, what was denied. Um, and if it was administrative or coding that that would be reviewed. And then if it's medical, then it would go to the clinical team to see what really were, you know, issues if there's anything medical wise. So then that's me as the appeal nurse would come in and look at that information to see what was reasons for the care, what was prior or after, and then try to put that whole picture together to see what's going on. Now, is your role primarily working on behalf of the provider or on behalf of the insurance company? At this point right now, I'm working for the provider side. Mm -hmm. All right. So you're helping the patients and the surgeons or the medical providers who've given care it's been denied by the insurance company and you're involved in the appeals process. Is that right? That's correct. Um, I don't have any uh, interaction with the patient. So we're appealing actually on behalf of the, on behalf of the hospital, the provider, but um, really trying to prevent that from being um, then passed on to the patient. And I really don't know how much is passed on to the patient or anything, but um, I do know that I'm appealing on, on behalf of, of the patient, hopefully to try to get that just covered for everybody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think our last question before I ask how people can contact you is we talked a little bit before about the possibility of fraud in the billing system. Are there situations that besides the one that you mentioned with a readmission within 30 days that could raise a concern about fraudulent billing? Um, well, I was thinking about that and it can fall into um, diagnostic testing. Um, if there seems to be that there are services that um, are billed that haven't been provided or um, if you're billing for services at a higher level than what was the patient really received. And um, another would be for billing that um, 
things that aren't medically necessary services, but you're still billing for those. Um, I think one of the things um, that, well, I was talking, I was thinking about, there was a situation that a friend had surgery and she was told prior that the, the surgery was covered, but afterwards it was deemed experimental. And I was asked um, by them to look into it. So at that time I was acting on behalf of the patient um, as an LNC um, regard and found out that the doctor's office that did insurance at an ambulatory center, they actually knew with some of the documents that I received from them that they, it was not an FDA approved procedure, but they led my friend to believe that they were. And she ended up having to um, take on the responsibility of the bill. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was definitely not what should have happened. Um, it was a insurance company that didn't require the authorization, but they do what was called a retro uh, review after the insurance, after the procedure was done and they find, determine whether it's medically necessary. Um, and, but it was deemed experimental. And so it was really sad that they didn't actually ask me before to help them to think through all the different um, situations to find out if it was really a covered situation. Um, but she did well with it and that's, that's what kind of the bottom line. It, she's happy that it happened, it worked. Um, but it, it just kind of brings up, you know, unethical things. Um, I've actually also had patients that I have reviewed that have come into the hospital with back pain and in reviewing their information from the office, it shows that it looks like they already talked to the insurance company and they were just kind of waiting for authorization or actually was denied. But this patient ends up coming into the ER and so then the hospital's obligated to take care of that patient and perform that back surgery. So it really kind of makes you wonder if there's anything unethical or fraudulent going on there um, because the hospital may end up actually having to write off all of that loss if the insurance company decides that it was still not uh, medically necessary for that surgery. So and that actually really does still happen. So, mm. mm hmm what I have gotten from talking with you, Wendy, is how important it is to know the regulations and to ask questions in advance so that the patient is clear on whether this medical treatment or surgery will be covered because the financial consequences can be catastrophic if it is denied and the patient's left with a huge expense that has to be paid. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. So it's, I would definitely love to talk to somebody just to help them to think through all the different situations and, you know, beforehand, just anything that could happen so that they're not surprised. Yeah. This is a unique way of using analytical skills as a legal nurse consultant. And I it thank really you is. for sharing yes. your experiences with us. Mm -hmm. How can our listener get in touch with you? Well, um, I have my profile set up on LinkedIn, so you can you can message me through LinkedIn. 
And um, I have my 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 email address is w rice w r i c e at adroit lnc a d r o i t lnc dot com, and otherwise through my website. Um, that's my business, Adroit Legal Nurse Consulting. So thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Wendy, for being the guest on Legal Nurse Podcast. I appreciate it. The time has gone by very fast, and I know we could go through many other aspects of this. We've given our listener a taste of the complexity of this area mm-hmm. and the the value of having somebody with a healthcare background who's involved in this appeal process to put the pieces of the puzzle together to help justify the care or evaluate it if it was medically unnecessary. Right. And with the high cost of care that exists in this country, it is so important to know that going in. Mm -hmm. Definitely, it's very important. Yes. And for you who's listening to this program, be sure to go to the show notes on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. Sign up for the transcripts of this program. We would love for you to be able to have this information in written form to refer to when you get a case that involves any of the areas that our guests have given their expertise to share with you, go to podcast.legalnursebusiness.com to sign up for the transcripts. And I look forward to having you on our next podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you. Coming up next on Legal Nurse Podcast, you'll have a chance to meet Angel Hickerson, who is with Guardian Angel Consulting. She's a legal nurse consultant located in New Mexico who has done some exhibiting with attorneys. If you are curious about how to get ready for and carry out a successful experience in a booth at an attorney trade show, you need to hear Angel. Angel, can you tell our listener a little bit about what we covered in the show? Well, we talked about overcoming your fears of exhibiting, what attire to wear to look professional, what type of expenses are needed to exhibit and be successful, and where your booth location should be so that you can get the most attention from attorney clients. You will be sure that you'll want to listen to Angel, take advantage of the knowledge that she has gained Of course, I have thrown in my side of the experiences as well, having exhibited since 1992 is the first time that I exhibited. And Angel and I will give you lots of good tips that you can use to carry out when you have an opportunity to exhibit in person. Coming up next, Angel Hickerson and exhibiting. Be sure to catch that show. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. 
Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.